0: Welcome to podcast 117 of the Star Trek Academy. This time we're looking at Star Trek Lower Decks Season 4, Episode 5, entitled Empathological Fallacies. I'm the Academy Media Professor Michael Merrick, and... This time, my co-host, the Academy philosophy professor, Rodney Cup, is not able to be here. Rodney's presenting at an academic conference this coming week, the joint conference of the Midwest Popular Culture Association and the Midwest American Culture Association. And his topic, you won't be surprised, is about philosophy in Star Trek. And particularly as displayed in the original series. I'm co-author, but I won't be in attendance at the conference. So I'm doing the podcast solo this week. We like the conversation format of the podcast better where both of us are there to compare ideas. But it's only the second time in 117 podcasts that it's just been me. So we hope you'll understand. We always start with a brief episode summary, so if you're not listening the first few days after the episode premieres, you can say, oh yeah, that's the one. But as you would expect, there will be spoilers from here on, starting just right now. In Empathological Fallacies, Cerritos has three female Betazoid diplomats on board, transporting them from Angel One to Risa. And because of the recent mysterious attacks on other ships, Cerritos is on communications lockdown for security reasons. The betazoids announced they want a party, and it soon appears, it appears that they're radiating telepathic projections, causing the ship's crew, close to them at least, to lose emotional control, including an over-the-top party in the ship's lounge. But the plot twist is that it's Tulyn who is really radiating the telepathic projection because she's unusually frustrated by not being able to send a message to her former captain, requesting permission to return to the Vulcan ship. She's concerned that she may not be Vulcan enough, but Mariner counsels her that the best way to handle her unresolved conflict is to talk through it. This eases Tallinn's mind and her telepathic projecting ends. Tallinn eventually decides to not send her message at all and remain on Cerritos further, to study the chaotic ways of humans. In another subplot, Boimler is struggling with how to be the best Lieutenant Junior grade he can be and gets called to a session in the ship's security section, where he's surprised that they are playing games and reciting poetry. At the end of the episode, Shax tells Boimler that security needs to take care of people emotionally, not only protect them from physical danger. And Boimler seemed like he needed a break from the stress He was causing himself at the end of the episode we learned that the betazoid women are actually betazoid intelligence agents and they've been trying to gather telepathic intelligence about that rogue ship they were affected by talin's telepathic projection also which is why they were acting kind of strangely as they leave they give captain freeman a blurry photo a betazoid monitoring station obtained of the ship that's been doing the attacks So that's our summary. Now, the original plan for this podcast, when Rodney and I first started it, was to talk about the philosophy and the themes and the morals to the story in each of the new Star Trek episodes. But we are fans. And so before we get around the philosophy, we talk about the episode context more holistically, the production design, character development, continuity of past Star Trek, individual details that got our attention. And we try to go deeper than just the reviews you'll find all over the internet. So uh, first, some of those perspectives. This episode relies a lot on Star Trek continuity, particularly past episodes featuring Deanna, Troy's mother, Loaxana Troy, and Spock's father, Sarek. As this episode reminded us, both appeared in episodes in which they were radiating emotions in ways that affected others nearby. In both of these stories, the telepathic projection was related to aging, and that's not the case for T'lyn. On the one hand, it seems a bit of a stretch that a relatively young Vulcan could so easily become so frustrated that she radiates this projection emotions telepathically. On the other hand, it does give insight into her character, and it really provides a convenient plot twist for the writers of this episode. The episode also reminds me just a bit of past Star Trek episodes like The Naked Time, in which The point of the episode really is simply to learn more about the characters, particularly their inner thoughts and fantasies and things that make them who they are. We see Tendi more than once in this episode, almost desperate to bond with Tulin, which may go back to last episode and, and previous seasons even, in which Tendi really feels the need for acceptance and wants people to see her beyond her Orion heritage. We also see Captain Freeman in this episode at one point telling herself, I'm a good captain, suggesting she sometimes experiences imposter syndrome. So several quick takes about things in this episode in no particular order. On the wall of Talin's quarters is a photo or painting of the huge statue at uh, the Mount Soleil ceremonial grounds on Vulcan, the equivalent to many people's height, the huge statue. When the security team is playing charades and we see a janitor's bucket, if you look closely, it has the Starfleet Delta logo on it, but inside is a typical slippery when wet icon of a person slipping on the floor. At one point, we see a map of the Romulan neutral zone, and inside the zone is, it's either a planet or a star, identified as Sharon,. C-H-E-R-O-N. This is the place name of the final battle in the Romulan War uh, back in Jonathan Archer's time. And it was the name of the treaty ending the war also. But Charon was also the name of the alien planet in the original series in Let That Be Your Last Battlefield where the half black, half white aliens came from. Now, in that episode, Enterprise visited the planet without being attacked by Romulans. So it may be a different planet just with a similar name from the one inside the neutral zone. Speaking of the map, Romulus was also on the map, as well as another location labeled R-O-M-I-I. And I'm not clear if that means Romy or if it's Rom-2. I'm not planning to go into too much detail right now, but I've often wondered about that fictional supernova that destroyed the Romulan sun. And I've been wondering about what kind of supernova it was, or is, or will be. It could be a really big star exploding. That's common for supernovas. But another common type of supernova is called the type 1A. In this type, there's a dwarf star circling a bigger star. And the the gravity of the dwarf star is pulling off surface matter from the bigger star. When it builds up enough, the little star explodes, or at least the outer layer does, and that can be just as devastating as a single star, a huge explosion. So this Rom-2 label or Rami could be the second star, the dwarf, close in to the big uh, Romulan sun. The real mission of the Betazoid women is to try telepathically to locate or track this mysterious ship that's been destroying other ships without warning. Angel One might seem to be a strange place for them to be coming from where they were doing this even though it is their undercover roles. You remember from season one of Next Generation that Angel One is the home of a matriarchal society. Not many people really seem to like that episode, but I think we can we can only assume that maybe the planet Angel One is strategically located for the Betazoid security team's remote telepathic sensing mission. We know that it was one of many they had visited and each time uh, their undercover role was apparently party animals this episode tells us that long ago cations like dr taana hunted and ate betazoids and i'm not sure if that is continuity that other star trek particularly live action star trek will comply with but it does in the context of lower decks bring up the question of whether the two species are native to the same planet or did this happen after one or both of them acquired spaceflight? Uh, like I said, I have a, a feeling it's a detail that won't ever show up in live action Star Trek. And finally, for this section of the podcast, I want to talk about poetry slams. Now, before I started teaching college, I was not familiar with the term, I didn't know what a poetry slam is. But the language and literature department of my school sponsors both a poetry slam and a fiction slam event each semester. So I did have the opportunity to learn what they are about. This is an event in in a social setting uh, in which writers read their very short creative works. They may have, for example, three minutes for a poem or a story they've written. Uh, There are usually rules like no sexist, racist, homophobic, transphobic comments, Due to the short length, the writer needs to be pithy. That means a lot of meaning in just a few words. And I think that conveying gut-wrenching emotions via the words is welcome. It's not oral interpretation. They're not acting. They're just reading the work, but reading it expressively. So both the poetry and fiction slams are a powerful stimulus for creative writing. The comment in this episode that slam poetry is where the soul meets the mind, I think is really indicative of the value of such an event to students of creative writing. And it would not surprise me at all if members of the Lower Decks Writer's Room, as professional writers, had participated in slams as part of their learning about writing in, at some point in the past. So emerging from that mini rabbit hole, let's talk about the meaning that we find in this Lower Decks episode? And yes, we're looking for the messages the writers and producers wanted us to take away from the episode, but we can find our own meaning. So what did we find as lessons in, in this episode? pathological Fallacies is the latest in a fairly long list of episodes in which we see Vulcans who either reject logic in favor of emotions, or struggle with logic versus emotions. Spock, of course, faced that internal conflict for much of his life. But we also saw it in T'Pol, in Star Trek Enterprise, in Cybok, And I think in Enterprise, we actually saw a whole ship of Vulcans who were embracing their emotions. We've also seen an emotional Vulcan. I don't remember how many, one or two or three in Strange New Worlds. So in a way, it's kind of a Star Trek trope and writers go back to the well repeatedly. But I think that it's a worthwhile trope if it's done well. It's symbolic of the struggles that many people have. I think the episode in this kind of story mirror conflict we see in our everyday lives. The less mature a person or a child is, the more likely is that emotions will, if you will, supersede critical thinking, supersede logic. Childhood tantrums, they're not really much different from the road rage assaults or politically motivated riots that uh, adults engage in. I said a couple of podcasts ago that psychologists call this emotional intelligence, because in psychology, intelligence as a concept means the same thing as ability. So emotional intelligence means the ability to regulate our emotions to be in control and not let our emotions control us and this doesn't happen automatically requires experience and training on vulcan the culture really demands very high emotional intelligence very high ability to control one's emotions they're there but we bury them or vulcans i should say bury them deep down and exercise a lot of control There have only been a few times we've seen Vulcan children on screen, and we've seen that for young Vulcans, it's a work in progress and their control is imperfect. But certainly for an adult Vulcan, even the slightest hint of less than perfect emotional control is embarrassing and it's frowned on. Today, we know that giving into anger and rage often has bad consequences for ourselves and for others. Talyn's frustration and not being able to send her message doesn't seem like it should be that big a deal, big enough deal to cause her to project these emotions telepathically. But really, how someone is reacting, whether it's distress or something else, is not for somebody else to judge. It's within the person, and we can't tell them not to have those feelings. On the other hand, as Mariner told Talyn, it is important to be a good listener and help when someone we know is experiencing troubles like this. But beyond the questions of emotion versus logic, I think this episode is a reminder of the challenges faced by anyone who, figuratively speaking, lives with their feet in two worlds, children of immigrants, May live in the culture of the old country at home, but in the society surrounding them at work or away from home. I've had Native American friends and students who I think feel the same way when they're at home, maybe on the reservation, and then different from how it is at college or working professionally. And I think the same can be true for anyone. It's as simple as how you behave at home versus at work or social settings. Do you really want grandma to know what you're like in the bar? Would the language you use with friends work in church? So some of these living in two worlds challenges are fairly superficial and, and people can generally cope. But Talyn is experiencing a really deep conflict. When we first saw her, I think it was season one, saving her Vulcan ship, she was the Vulcan equivalent of Beckett Mariner, a Vulcan-style badass. And I think that was the intention for her character in that first episode in which she appeared. Now, as she serves as a mirror to reflect on humanity, she is struggling. She questions whether she's Vulcan enough as defined by other people in her Vulcan culture. She perceives that something may be wrong with her just because she's different. Again, that she's not truly Vulcan. In one scene, Talin first helps balance Mariner To remove the influences of this telepathic projection. But uh, after that, Mariner does a pretty good job uh, after being balanced. And knowing Mariner as we have come to over the seasons, I think that maybe she rarely is fully balanced. Even the security team in this episode, you might say, balances its duties with respect to the physical safety of the crew versus the emotional well being. And if you listen carefully, even the Poetry Slam poem about Worf is about balance. Worf as a warrior and Worf growing up on the farm of his human adoptive parents, the Roshenkos. So many of the elements of the empathological fallacies plot relate to having or finding balance in one's life and not misunderstanding who we are and who we're supposed to be. So this episode addresses how to resolve these conflicting emotions, which Vulcans have, even if they're buried very deeply and under, usually under rigorous control. That goes back to the same Star Trek theme we've seen again and again in recent Star Trek, particularly as recently as last episode. Who am I? Who am I supposed to be? Who do I want to be? Who am I meant to be? The message Star Trek has pretty much consistently given us is that we ourselves are the ones who decide who we truly are, not the peer pressure of those around us or our wider culture. That's the message Talin gets from Mariner, which helps resolve the conflict. I'm not sure if it's completely resolved, but it helps. Mariner says that talking about our problems is better than letting them harden down into a dark core of our being. It's advice that Mariner hasn't always been able to internalize but she understands it well enough to counsel Talin, apparently pretty successfully. Speaking of Talin, we find out for sure that she is on Cerritos as punishment for her non-Vulcan behavior, what she calls the minor character flaw of what's essentially being a Vulcan badass. I can't help remember when we talk about punishment What David Gerald wrote in the 1970s in the script for the original animated series episode Bem, an alien character in that episode says, errors demand recognition so that they will not be repeated. Intelligent beings need no revenge. Punishment is necessary only where learning cannot occur without it. I also have a friend who is a retired federal prosecutor in the United States saying that the purposes of the sentences for people found guilty is to cause them to change their ways. And the sentences need to be long enough or strict enough to accomplish that kind of change. So we have Talin at face value being punished, or at least perceiving that she's being punished. And her perception is that banishing her to an environment in which she's bombarded by emotions is illogical. But is it? I wonder. Or is the captain wiser than he seems to put her in a place where she can't help but evaluate the rules of logic versus emotion? Here's another angle on this episode I want to talk about. Most of the lessons I've talked about so far have to do with Tallinn, but I think that there are some significant lessons in the Boimler subplot. And there are two lessons there. One is pretty straightforward about Boimler not stressing himself out about achieving his own expectations for himself as Lieutenant Junior Grade. And I didn't mention it earlier, but he was stressing himself out over knowing all of the crew by name or connecting names and faces together. It's not healthy to take anything like that to an extreme. But I think I do understand this thing about recognizing people by name, connecting names and faces together. I think teachers often work hard when a semester starts to connect the faces and names of their students in each class so that the names on papers and assignments or in computer record keeping now connect with the real people in class. I think that's worthy, but you know, everything can be taken to extremes. I knew one political science university faculty member who on the first day of class gave his students the option of letting him take pictures of them so he would know for sure what names connected to which faces. Now, I don't know how the students really reacted to that. I know some agreed to do that. I've never done that exactly, but I won't say that I've never looked up students on Facebook or other social media to try to figure out for sure what faces go with what names. Calling people by name is important. It's a sign of respect, but it's also important just to making connections. I think that the bigger lesson in this subplot is from Shax, who says, as I mentioned earlier, that security protecting the crew also means protecting their emotional well-being. And that's what the security team is doing with Boimler in this episode. I think that that is also a comment on today's society and political rhetoric today, protecting people from some kind of immediate physical danger is often at odds with longer term well-being, particularly when we're talking about government funding for these things. Part of that is because long-term well-being is much more complex than the short-term safe or not question. It's not as easy to quantify outcomes and taking care of someone for the long-term tends to be more expensive, both in terms of money and effort. So there are a lot of people who see things like depression, for example, as "Eh, it's a short term fix. It's easily solved. Just say, oh, get over it. You know, be happy. It's not that big a deal. And of course, that is not really helpful to a person's emotional state when they are experiencing those feelings. What's deep down inside of us is very complex and often very hard to change. But we do have to take care of each other. And I think that's an important message of this episode. So I think we'll turn now, turn the page to the the podcast section we call Final Thoughts. This is where we look at the overall perspective, think about what value the episode brings to the Star Trek universe and fans. Now, I enjoyed the episode. It draws on a lot of familiar elements from past Star Trek continuity that I think fit together quite well, surprisingly well, maybe. As I've said several times on the podcast, it's not a question of how familiar a plot formula or a plot element is, uh, or whether it's been done before. Creativity is defined as how innovative the work is, the creation is. And in this case, that means innovative use of these familiar elements and pathological fallacies uses some of these past things in the foreground i might say as the rationale for the story and some in the background a lot of people call them easter eggs we do too sometimes and those are things that add richness for the viewer you know if you don't recognize it it doesn't mean anything to you but if you do recognize the item in the background the easter egg then it does add richness in meaning and uh, creativity to the episode Yes, these kinds of things, and particularly those in this episode, are used differently because Lower Decks is a comedy series, not dramatic like other Star Trek. But even so, I think that the creative concept behind pathological fallacies could have worked as a dramatic television, as certainly as well as it does as comedy. And that is one of the things I look to decide how good an episode is in Lower Decks. I'm not talking about every single line of dialogue, but the fundamental story, the outline of the plot, the conflict of the plot, you might say, if it can work as drama as well as comedy, I think that helps it be a strong episode. I did grumble last week about the frequent use of bleeps to ever so slightly hide profanity. In this episode, I think I counted five times. Like I said last week, I'm not offended by the profanity, but I really wish we didn't need repeated profanity to tell Star Trek stories. Once you're a wit, twice you're a half-wit, what are you after five times? I think it loses, and, and yes, the bleep can be comedic, but I think it loses value. It loses comedic value when it's used so often. And finally, I want to note that we do have a few developments in this rogue alien attack ship story arc. It's interesting that the Packlid story arc, which I think started in the final episode of Lower Deck Season 1, didn't come back until the sixth episode of Season 2, and then waited three episodes later to Episode 9 for us to encounter Packlids again, and that led to Freeman's arrest for allegedly exploding Pakled planet in Episode 10. This season's longer, you might call it slow boil of the storyline, feels more like the incrementally developing stories in Star Trek Discovery, for example. And as I indicated last week, this is episode five of a 10-episode season, so we're halfway through, and I think it is time for the story arc to begin advancing faster. With that, I'll say thank you for being here for this podcast. Both Rodney and I will be here next week with our thoughts about episode six of this Lower deck season. By the way, that episode next week probably will drop on Monday rather than the usual Sunday if you listen uh, right after the fact. You can stay in touch with us on our social media feeds on Mastodon, X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook. On all three of those, we're at Trek underscore Academy, and we're on Tumblr at trek academy without the underscore you can search online for the star trek academy podcast and look for our red vulcan hand salute logo also don't forget to subscribe via your podcast app to automatically get the new podcast downloads thank you for listening we'll see you next time here on the star trek academy podcast